So we're talking about worship, and worship can't just be about you. You have to lose yourself to find Christ in worship. You have to, if you come here and you say, okay, here's what I want. It needs to be this way or this way. It needs to meet my needs, my expectations, my preferences. Then you're never really going to worship. It's got to be about Christ. It's got to be about his glory. So we're looking today at a story from the life of a man named Amos in the book of Amos. Amos chapter 5, in fact. And a lot of you would say, you know, Amos is not exactly my favorite book of the Bible. In fact, I can't find Amos without a table of contents. And if you're there, that's fine. But you'll find, if you actually read Amos, you'll find it's very relevant for today. And let me tell you why. Amos was a guy who was not a professional preacher. He was actually a farmer, a shepherd. He farmed figs. He raised sheep. And one day, he just got it in his mind that God had called him to go and preach the message of God to the people of the northern kingdom of Israel. Now, when we hear someone say, hey, God's called me to preach, we kind of look skeptically upon that, especially someone like Amos. So you can imagine what it was like when he came up from the southern kingdom of Judah, dressed in his farming and shepherding clothes, into northern Israel, where things were prosperous, where people thought, hey, I've got everything I need here, the economy's strong, Uh, we're the chosen ones. This was basically a redneck heading into River Oaks and saying, all you fat cats are about to burn. Because that's exactly what this was. You can imagine how he was received. There is, in fact, in chapter 4, a moment when, when Amos preaches a sermon in which he calls all the women of Israel cows of Bashan and says, you will be led away with hooks through your noses. He was not man of the year in Israel. I can tell you that. And yet, he was telling them the truth. And right here in chapter 5, what we're about to read, he, he tells them, even your worship, even when you come into the temple and worship according to the way I've told you to worship, you're doing it wrong. Even your worship is offensive to me. Let's read what he says in verse 21. Remember, he's speaking, but these are the words of God. So this is God speaking and rendering judgment on the worship that, that the Israelites are offering. He says in verse 21, I hate, I despise your religious feasts. I cannot stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll on like a river and righteousness like a never-failing stream. Years ago, you may remember, there was a movie called What Women Want. It was about a womanizer who wakes up one day suddenly miraculously able to hear the thoughts of every woman he comes into contact with. And the, the basic premise of the movie is that men can't understand women without some kind of supernatural help. And I say that's baloney. Here's, here's all you need in order to understand a woman. Number one, she has to tell you what she wants. No hints, no, uh, you know, if you really love me, you'll get it. No, she has to actually say, here's what I want, here's what I need. Number two, you have to listen. You have to listen. You have to put down the remote control and, you know, stop thinking about football scores and just listen and pay attention. There's your free relationship advice. It's the best advice you'll ever get. You're welcome. Really, but... God never has a problem telling us what he wants. In the Word of God, he, we, are, we are clearly commanded how to live, how to follow Him, how to worship Him. Our problem is we don't want to listen. 
We don't want to conform to His ways. Amos here uses some very vivid terms. It's, it's shocking, really. Imagine God were saying these words to First Baptist Church, Conroe. Imagine the Lord came down in some physical manifestation and says, you know, good job singing. I didn't like any of it. Glad you're here. 20 degree day. Congratulations. Doesn't mean a thing to me. He's saying that to the Israelites. And they're worshiping in His name. They're worshiping according to the commands of the law of Moses. They're showing up on the three feast days every year and, and, and making a pilgrimage to the temple. They're fasting when God said to fast. They're offering burnt offerings for their sins. They're offering fellowship offerings just to say thank you to God. And God says, I don't want any of it. You gather together in my name, I boycott the whole thing. I'm not even there. You burn offerings to me, it doesn't smell good to me. It, smell, it turns my stomach. You sing songs to me, it sounds like a cat being dragged through a meat grinder backwards. It's awful. And God does not want their worship. But why? Could He, could he feel that way about our worship? Could He feel that way about you and me and, and the songs we just sang and the offerings just, we just offered and our presence here in this place? What is it that makes worship effective or offensive? See, what God says here is it's not just our presence. It's not just the offerings we give, the size of them. It's not the quality of our singing voices. It has to do with what we do between Sabbath days. It has to do with how we live outside of the gathering of God's people. In other words, God wants justice and righteousness. Now, next week we're going to talk about how to sing. Next week is going to be a very different service. I hope you'll be here. Um, we're, going to have, uh, uh, we're going to talk about why we sing so much in church and why we sing the songs we do and, and what it's all about. And I, I think it'll stimulate a lot of conversation for you. It's going to be a very different kind of way for me to preach. And, and you know, I, I and Robert and Nathan have worked to, to present something different. But today, I want to say, no matter how well you sing, no matter how sincerely you mean it in your heart, God says if there's not righteousness and justice in your life, I don't want to hear it. It means nothing to me. So what are righteousness and justice? Honestly, if you read the Old Testament, sometimes when you see those two terms, they're used synonymously. Yeah, that's the word. Synonymously, so they mean the same thing. But other times it's clear, and this is an example, other times it's clear that God is, is making a distinction between those two terms. So what are justice and righteousness? Justice is God saying, I want you to make things fair. I want you to apply the law equally to everyone. Remember, the Israelites lived under the law of Moses. God gave Moses this law when the nation of Israel was being uh, established. It was essentially their version of the Constitution. And written into those laws were all kinds of provisions to make things equal, to make things fair, so that everybody would be taken care of. And for instance, there were laws in the law of Moses that took care of widows, orphans, and foreigners, people who had moved to Israel to live among the Israelites. And he said, I'm going to judge you based on how you treat those three groups, widows, orphans, and aliens. There were laws that, that, that took care of the poor. So, for instance, if you owned a piece of land and you planted grain, and one day you walked outside and saw someone pulling heads of grain off of your plants, you were not supposed to stop them. This was your way of providing for folks who didn't have land and couldn't plant crops and had, a, had to find another way to, to take care of their families. That was called gleaning. 
There were laws in the, in, the, in the law of Moses that took care of debtors, people who were indebted to their creditors. One of the great laws in the book of Leviticus was the year of Jubilee. Once every 50 years, once every 50 years, they were to declare a Jubilee throughout the land, and so all debts would be canceled. All slaves would be set free. Uh, anybody who had ever sold a piece of land or, or lost it because, because of a foreclosure, they would get it back. It was God's way of saying, you know, you may have gotten yourself into a hole, but there's a chance for a new, a new start. Your mom or your dad may have drank away the family fortune, and you may be homeless and propertyless, but now you get a fresh start. You get a new chance once every 50 years. In fact, God made a promise to the Israelites. He said, if you will follow these laws, if you will follow me instead of your own greed, I promise you there will be nobody poor in the land of Israel. Can you imagine a nation with no poverty? And yet that's what God said. He didn't say that everybody would have equal amounts. He didn't say everybody would have the same thing. There was incentive for hard work. There was incentive for, for good investing. But no one would be without. Everyone would have enough. But it didn't happen. The Israelites didn't follow the law of God. For instance, if you read the Old Testament, you see that after, Genesis, after Leviticus, there's no mention of the year of Jubilee. This is a fantastic idea God had to put everybody back on level ground twice a century, and they never even did it. There's no evidence that the Israelites followed all the commands regarding gleaning and, and taking care of the widows and the orphans. In fact, the evidence is the opposite. Amos talks about it over and over again. In, in chapter 2, he says, the rich sell the righteous for a pair of sandals. In chapter 6, he says, you people lounge around on your couches while the poor are starving in the streets. There was this huge gap between the rich and poor, and that gap was getting wider and wider and wider, and God was angry about it. There was no justice in Israel. And then there's righteousness. Righteousness is, it's not just doing the right thing, and it's not moral perfection. Righteousness is, it has to do with covenant and relationship to God. Righteousness is being right with the God who made you. So it doesn't mean moral perfection, but it does mean taking your sin seriously, being aware of what's wrong in your life and repenting before the Lord. A righteous man or woman is someone who has confessed their sins before God, has confessed their sins before the community, has made reparations where they're able to, but knows that in every way they are doing their best to live according to God's standards. They're in right relationship to Him. Now, the Israelites were not righteous either. They weren't just and they weren't righteous. Their, their pet sin was idolatry. You probably know this if you have any familiarity with the Old Testament. But it was very common for, for your average Israelite to go to the temple, offer sacrifices, sing the songs to God, and then go home and worship Baal on the little private shrine he had in his house. And they thought nothing of this. All the other peoples do it. Another one of their sins that Amos talks about over and over again in this book is sexual immorality. And how they had taken the, the gift of, of union between one man and one woman for life and they had perverted it. And that was, that was a perversion of God's glory. They were not just and they were not righteous. And Amos came to tell them, it doesn't matter what you do in worship, I'm not going to accept it if your heart isn't right with me. Now, there's, there's a way to understand this. Justice you can see as primarily horizontal because it has to do with how we treat other people, whereas righteousness is, is primarily vertical because it has to do with how we relate to God. And if you think about it, it matches up really well to something famous Jesus said. In Matthew 22, 37-39, He said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Vertical. 
and you shall love your neighbor as yourself, horizontal. And then he says, Amos says at the end of verse 24, let your justice roll like river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. That word stream is the Hebrew word wadi, which is what we would call a gully. There were gullies all throughout the land of Israel. We probably know what a gully is, right? It's a little dry riverbed or creek bed. Um, the piece of property I grew up on where my parents still live, there's a gully back and back. Um, there's never water there. When I was a little kid, I, I found an old uh, mattress because my family, sad to say, threw its trash in that gully. And I dragged a mattress over there, and, and I used to jump off the top of it onto that mattress. I didn't tell my parents. I survived somehow. But that's how it was, it was, it was this deep, craggy, dry riverbed. But every once in a while, when there was a huge rain, water would flow through there. And it was really impressive. You'd put on your rubber boots and you'd tromp out back there to watch the water running through like the Mississippi River or something. And what God is saying is, your justice and righteousness is like a dry gully. Every once in a while, you get it in your minds to be righteous and you show up and you offer your sacrifices. Every once in a while, you get it in your heads to be just and you go out and you throw a bag of money at some poor person and you feel good about yourself. But I want it to be like a never-failing stream. I want it to flow constantly. That's God's expectation for us. That we would be known in the world as people who are always, always concerned with how we relate to the Lord and always, always concerned with how much we love the people around us. That they would feel that love and know they are loved by God. So what does He want from us as a church specifically? If we're going to be a righteous and just church, what does that look like? A righteous church is a church that isn't just concerned about budgets and behinds in the seats and buildings, but it's concerned about whether people are getting right with God. If we're a righteous church, then we're going to see what we saw this morning with the baptism. We're going to see people on a regular basis coming to the Lord and saying, I'm giving my heart to Him. And they're doing that because they see a difference in us. They see that we live different kinds of lives because we know the Word of God and we don't stray from it. A righteous church is one where the Word of God is unfailingly preached and taught and believed. And I know, I know there are parts of this book that are very unpopular in our culture and we're, we're, there's strong pressure from outside to say, okay, you need to ignore that if you want to fit in with the rest of us. And yet, if we're to be righteous, we have to say, I must stand on the rock of the Word of God. It has not failed me, and it will not fail me. A righteous church is one where this book is taught, where this book is preached, where this book is believed, where it is our only authority. And in fact, I, I want to say this often enough that you get tired of hearing me say it. I am not the authority. Your life group leader is not the authority. No TV preacher or author is the authority. This book is the authority. So if I say something on a Sunday morning that is new to you, better check it against the book. This is our authority. And that's a righteous church. A righteous church is one where we live according to God's Word so strongly. Where we call sin, sin. Where we confront it in ourselves. Where we pull the plank out of our own eyes so we can see to help our neighbors with the speck in theirs we live lives of such righteousness, people are just irresistibly drawn to a God who would love people that much. But a just church, that's a righteous church. A just church, though, 
is a church that has all of that plus a deep and abiding love for everybody outside the walls of this building. And it shows because we're attracting people who don't look like us. Because we go out of our way to go across the street and meet somebody who doesn't look like us and say, hey, we would like to bring you to our church. We would like to invite you. And when we show up on a Sunday morning, instead of just gathering around the people we know and and are comfortable with, we look across the room and we see someone who looks a little different and we go over and we say, I'm glad you're here. Want to eat lunch afterwards? But it's more than what happens inside here. A just church is one where we care deeply about the needs of our city, where we're familiar with what's going on around us, the hurts, the, the hardships, and the heartaches. And we're there at ground level, at ground zero, meeting their needs in the name of Christ because they don't really want to hear the gospel until they know that we actually care about them. They don't need another sales pitch. Another sales pitch. They need to know there's a God who cares about them right where they are, right what they're struggling, right with what they're struggling with right now. What does he want from us as individuals? As individual Christians, he wants us to be righteous and just. And I got to say, if you're honest, if, you, if you'll take a, a good hard look inside, you'll know as a Christian, you, you tend to either one, one or two of those poles, either one or the other of those poles. Some of us are more bent toward righteousness and, and we find it easy to get into the Word of God and to show up at church on Sundays and to, to pray and to do all these religious things. And some of us are more compassion-oriented and, and oriented toward justice. So, for instance, and, and these are just two totally hypothetical extreme examples, but, but you, you've got the, the guy who shows up every Sunday, every time the doors are open. He wishes they still had those perfect attendance pins that he could wear so he could show everyone. I've been in, I've been in my class every day for the last, every Sunday for the last 14 years. He, he knows the Bible really well. He gives an offering. He wouldn't think of saying a bad word. He wouldn't think of going out and getting drunk on a Friday night. He wouldn't even consider looking at a woman that's not his wife. But he has these deep-seated prejudices against people who he doesn't necessarily like, and he doesn't see a problem with that. And his attitude towards people who are struggling economically is, well, it's usually their own fault. So why should I give to subsidize their own laziness and their own lack of planning? Let them learn from the school of hard knocks. After all, I pay more taxes than I should. And on the same church pew, you've got the guy who's idealistic and, and justice-oriented, who, who is compassionate and kind and accepting of everybody around him, who volunteers at the homeless shelter once a week and rides in the MS-150 every year. He's just an all-around good guy. Everybody loves him, but he still won't marry the mother of his child, and his devotional life is non-existent. And if you pinned him down, he'd admit that most of the Bible he doesn't even read, and a lot of it he thinks doesn't even apply today. And both of those two people are terrible advertisements for what Christianity is all about. Both of those people, when they come into God's house and they, and they sing the songs and they offer their offerings, God won't accept it because they're not living with justice and righteousness. And they make no apologies for it. And so what I'm trying to tell you is, be aware of your own self. Let the Holy Spirit speak to you and say, Lord, where am I letting you down in the area of justice and righteousness? And I think most of us, if we were honest, we would say we're, we're, we're oriented toward righteousness. I say that because that's the kind of people churches primarily attract these days. And if you are, I mean, if you're a person who just gets this whole church thing and, and it comes easy to you, 
then ask the Lord to help you become more oriented toward justice. You know, if you're a, if you're a righteousness-oriented person, I'm going to say a shocking thing to you. You don't need another Bible study. I mean, you're already going to life group, you're already going to BSF, and you're already listening to something on the radio once a week. You don't need another Bible study. Take the energy that would have gone toward going, toward a, going to another Bible study and instead take the, take the time to go across the street and meet your neighbor and get to know your neighbor's children and, and find out what their needs are and start to pray for them. Get involved in a ministry that, that meets physical needs outside these walls. There are several opportunities right here at First Baptist. And there are others in our community if we don't have what you like. Find some, some need in our world that breaks your heart and give to it financially over and above the tithe you give to God's kingdom and let that change you. Where your treasure is, your heart will be also. So if you start giving to, to address homelessness or single parenting or if you adopt a child through Compassion International, if you give to missions, it's going to change your heart and you're going to become more justice-oriented because you're giving. On the other hand, if you're a person who's highly compassionate and, and you're very open and accepting, but, but you know that all this righteousness is, is hard for you to get your mind around and your heart toward, then get into the Word of God. You do need a, another Bible study. You do need to find a, a plan to read the Scriptures for yourself. If you need some help with that, I can help. Um, pray and just confess before the Lord and say, Lord, here are the areas where I know I'm falling short. Stop making peace with your own sin and saying, ah, oh, this is just the way I am. Confess it and getting, get it right before Him and, and experience the, the blessing that comes with righteousness. God accepts us just as we are. That's the good news. And the other good news is He doesn't leave us there. Wherever He found us, He doesn't leave us there. He's always trying to draw us towards something better, something bigger, something more and more glorious. And you might say, well, why is this all necessary? I mean, if I'm saved by grace, if I'm going to heaven when I die, why, why should I worry about whether I'm more righteousness or more justice-oriented? Why do we have to be both? Why can't I just be who I am? Let me share this and then I'm done. Jesus came into the world. He came into the world God incarnate, knowing that God Almighty demands righteousness and justice of His people. He also knew that we're not capable of both. We're not capable of either one perfectly. And that left him with a quandary. Because as the Son of God, he was too righteous to ignore our sin. Too righteous to just walk around saying, you know, you're okay. Just do what you do. Just you be you and everything will be all right. He couldn't do that. He was too righteous. God hates sin. It's, it's, like a, it's like a cardiologist who says, eh, I got no problem with plaque in your arteries. It's like an oncologist who says, eh, me and cancer are good. No, God hates sin. He hates what it does to us. Jesus was too righteous to just ignore the sin all around us. It had to be dealt with. On the other hand, he was too just, too loving, too compassionate to just let us all die and go to hell forever. He couldn't just say, well, they deserved it. They brought it on themselves. It's not my problem. And that was a problem. How could he reconcile? How could he address? How could he be true to both the righteousness and the justice of God? How could he be both just and the justifier of those who are sinful like you and me? Well, 
righteousness and justice, they meet one place where the vertical and the horizontal come together, and that's, that's where you see a cross. And that was the answer, the only answer. The only way that God's hatred of sin, His wrath towards sin, could be satisfied just as equally as His incredible, unstoppable love for sinful people. Jesus died so that we could be both righteous and just. And now, and now, those of us who've walked through that door and received that salvation, we have the opportunity to become something brand new, something beautiful, something the world doesn't ever see otherwise. People who are right with God and who love their neighbors as themselves because the cross demands it. 